Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said, Let us worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Gracious Father, we fear you, not with the craven fear of the pagans and idol worshipers, but with a holy fear that trembles at your greatness, at your purity, your glory, your majesty. You are high and lifted up, and the angels in your presence cover their faces, and they cover their feet, and they cry out continually, holy, holy, holy. And therefore, we tremble before you. We know that we are welcome, and yet we know that you are great. We know that we are welcome, but you are perfect and righteous, and we are rebels and traitors and thieves. We are orphans and widows, tax collectors and prostitutes. We are dust and ashes in your sight. But we are here in the great name of Jesus, and we are clothed in his righteousness, in his perfection, his purity, his majesty, his goodness. It is not our own. It was all a gift. But we are not our own because we were bought with the great price of his blood. We do not understand this grace, but we are here because we love this grace. And so we worship you now in the name of Jesus, our righteousness, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The fourth commandment is a command to remember. But the Bible teaches us that we are embodied creatures and therefore this is not merely a a mental act. The act of remembering must be embodied and embedded in our lives. In the fourth commandment, God commands us to remember in time. We are to mark our days and weeks in, in a certain way in order to remember. Time is what tempts us to forget, but by the same token, time is meant by God as an aid to remember. This is why God created the sun, moon, and stars to divide the day from the night and to be for signs and seasons, days and years, to rule over day and night, to be reminders. What do we need to remember? Exodus 20, in Exodus 20, Moses says that Israel must remember the Sabbath in order to remember that God created all things in six days and rested on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses says that Israel must remember that they were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In the New Testament, Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper and he commanded us to give thanks and share bread and wine in order to remember his death and resurrection until he comes again. So what are you doing here this morning? Why are you here? You are here to remember. You are here to remember that God created you in all things. You're here to remember that God is not only your creator, but also your redeemer, your savior, your Lord, your king, that he delivered Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and now he has also delivered you from the guilt of sin, the power of Satan and death by the blood of his son. You You are here to remember that Jesus is risen from the dead. You are here to remember that your sins are washed away. You are here to remember that all things are made new. 
You are here to renew covenant, to remember the Sabbath, to gather with your people, to worship with the saints of God, to rest in his grace, and to rejoice in his love. You are here to remember. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Father, we confess that we so often forget. We forget who you are and what you have done, and so we forget who we are and what we are for. We confess that since you have commanded us to remember, it is a sin for us to forget. And frequently our sin of forgetfulness begets additional sins like worry and fear and anger and lust. We forget that you have made us in all things, that you are the source of all good, and that you never leave or forsake us, your people. And when we forget these things, we grasp and demand and panic and curse. We look to other sources of security and hope and happiness. We look to man-made idols and fetishes, the praise and admiration of men, beauty, sex, power, money, false gods that cannot save, that are powerless to deliver us. We confess that this forgetfulness and all our forgetful sins are disobedience to you and deserve your just wrath. But we plead the blood of Jesus and we ask your forgiveness. In your wrath, remember mercy. He was faithful and obedient for us. And so remember him and forgive us and wash us completely clean. Create in us clean hearts and renew in us a right spirit. Cause your spirit to dwell in us so that we might remember you in all things and never forget. And so that we might teach our neighbors and all the nations to return and remember you. We know that if we in the church only feign repentance, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 57 says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The centurion understood how authority worked. He knew that if Jesus only said the word, his servant would be healed. And so God has spoken the definitive word about our sin, and this is that word. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be God. The text this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. These are the words of God. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemies, filthy communication out of your mouth, Lie not one to another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, 
Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this passage before us today. I pray that our hearts would be laid open before you just as this passage is laid open before us. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in us. I pray that you do a wonderful thing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in the scriptures, particularly in books like Colossians, we are given a high Christology, that is, a high doctrine of the identity, the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're given a high theology. We're given a high Christology. Christ has ascended into the highest heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is himself the infinite waterfall of holy pleasure that cascades at that right hand. Psalm 16, 11, at, at the uh, right hand of God the Father is a river of pleasure. That waterfall of infinite joy has no top, no bottom, no sides, no front, and no back. Christ is all, and Christ is all in all. But this is not the kind of high theology that puffs up. This is not the kind of high theology that puffs up, and if it puffs up, then it's not really high theology. It's a high something else. Quite the contrary. For thus, this is what Isaiah says, Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. There's the, there's the most high God. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God is the most high God, which is why he dwells with the lowly. God is the most high God, and so he dwells with the lowly. No, and that means, as we should see, we should measure the height of our theology by how low it can stoop. How high is your theology? Well, can it bend down and pick things up? Can it be the servant of all? Can it give itself away? Is it, if it doesn't do that, then it's not really high Christology. It's not really high theology at all. So let's consider this text in front of us, uh, Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. So if you've been raised with Christ, you ought to yearn to be where Christ actually is, which is at the right hand of God. So verse 1, Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. He ascended into heaven. And because he's at the right hand of God the Father, and because you have been raised with him, you ought to consider yourself also to have ascended with him. So the, the Bible teaches that we are co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected, and that we have 
been co-raised, co-ascended with him into the heavenly places. So we're living here in Moscow. We're living here on the Palouse. We should also be seeking to live in the heavenly places. That's what we have. The saints in Colossa are in two places. They're in Colossa, which is Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. They are also in the heavenly places. If you've been raised with Christ, you need to live in two places. Set your affections where you actually are. Verse 2, set your affections where you actually are positioned. This is because your earthly identity is dead and your heavenly identity is alive. Verse 3, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in a shared glory. That's verse 4. And because of that, it is necessary to mortify your members which remain here on the earth. You've got members that are here on the earth, and it's necessary for you to mortify your members which are on the earth, and which can be generally described under the one word, lust. Verse 5 has a series of them. It says, um, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. You could lump all of those under the heading of lust. Verse 5, these are the desires that the wrath of God rests upon. Verse 6, and you Colossians used to walk in those desires yourselves, verse 7. This is how you used to be. You, you, you used to pursue these things. You used to walk in them. So, Paul says, take off the coat of all foul attitudes. Do you have a bad attitude? Take that coat off, verse 8. Stop lying to each other, he says, since you've taken off the coat of the old man. You've taken off the coat of the old man, verse 9. But it's not enough to take off the foul coat. You must also put on the coat of the new man, the Jesus coat, verse 10. You must take off the coat of the old man. You must take off the coat of the old Adam. And you must put on the coat of the second Adam, the last Adam, the new Adam. When we wear that uniform, previous differences fade the differences between Jew and Greek and barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, verse 11, and Christ is everything. Putting on the Jesus coat means putting on a number of other things as well. Mercy, kindness, meekness, forgiveness, all of that which we see in verses 12 and 13. And don't forget to put on love, he says, which is the bond of perfection. Now remember that Christ is love, Christ is our kindness, Christ is our mercy, all of these things. And so Paul is, he's not uh, giving us a systematic diagram, uh, he's not give, giving us a schematic di diagram, he's layering metaphor upon metaphor. So we're put on Jesus, for example, jumping over to Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God, put on the helmet of salvation. Well, who is our salvation? Christ is our salvation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Who is our righteousness? Christ is our righteousness. Put on the belt of truth. Who is the truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when, when Paul is saying, put on the full armor of God, he's saying in another way, put on Jesus. It's the same thing here. Put on mercy, put on love, put on kindness. And then he says, put off the old man and put on the new man. It's all Christ. So what do you do when, you're, when you are all done with this process, you put off the old man, you put on the new man, what then? You let the peace of God rule among all of us, and you are to show gratitude, verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says, 
teaching and admonishing one another through means of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Verse 16. And whatever you do, remember whose coat you are wearing and be grateful. Verse 17. So, let's consider, let's drill down to some of these. Um, this, there's quite a lot here. Um, in verse 5, remember I, I t- uh, asked you to remember this when we were in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 2 it says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossa. Then here in verse 5, he says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. So he's talking to faithful brothers, he's talking to Christians, he's talking to saints, and he says, therefore mortify your members which are on the earth. And then he gives a list of pretty bad sins. So these saints and faithful Christians like all Christians since that time, every Christian who has walked this planet has had to do this. Every Christian has to do this. And that is, you have to straddle heaven and earth. You have to be mindful of your position in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, and you have to navigate what that means in this life here on earth. And you have to do it while bumping up against all kinds of lusts. So these saints and faithful Christians, like all Christians since, were summoned up into the heavenly places. They are called to straddle heaven and earth. Just as the great angel in Revelation had one foot on the land and one on the sea, so we also have one foot on the rock of the heavenly places and one foot on this, uh, one foot on the miry clay of earth and its lusts. All right, so Paul says to the Colossians, mortify your members which are on the earth, and then he gives a list of lusts, various lusts. And we are dealing with a difficult situation. We are, we are uh, positioned in Christ, we are placed in Christ at the right hand of the Father where no unholiness can ever come, and we are also living our lives here where all kinds of unholiness can come. So, we have one foot in heaven, one on earth, and this earth is attended with many temptations. So Paul tells these saints to put their leprous passions to death. Put them to death, he says. Now there are two things that we can derive from this instruction. Two things. He says, you Colossians, you saints, you faithful brethren, put these things to death. Two things we can take away. One is that true Christians can be and are afflicted with such lusts. That's the first thing. True Christians are, well, if none of us had anything to do with any of them, if none of us had to deal with these things, why would Paul tell us to put them to death? If they weren't afflicting us, if they weren't coming near to us, if they didn't bother us, then why would he have to tell us to execute them? He's telling us to deal with these things because we must deal with these things. So the first thing is that true Christians can be saints and faithful brethren can at times, some days you're walking with God and you're, you're walking down the street and the sun's shining and you're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and you're just walking with God. And, and other days you look into your heart and you think you, you feel like you're looking into a 50-gallon drum full of snakes. And you think, How, where did that come? How did that, what, what do I do? Well, Paul tells us what to do here. Mortify, therefore, put to death, therefore, your members which are on the earth. So, the second truth is that true Christians are instructed to execute these lusts. 
And if you have to do it again, well then, do it again. Right? If, so Paul says two things. One, don't be surprised when you have to deal with these things. And secondly, you must deal with them. Don't be surprised that you have to deal with them. And secondly, do what I, do what I told you to do when you're confronted with these things. We have nothing to complain about against one another. Let me say, emphasize this particularly. We have nothing to complain about against one another if we have something to deal with here. Saints and faithful brethren have to deal with these things. We do have something to object to if someone refuses to do what Paul says to do. If some, someone doesn't do what Paul says to do, if he refuses to put these things to death, then there's something we can say to that person. But you can't, you, you must not, you, and this is really important, particularly, uh, I'll say a word to you married couples, particularly as husbands and wives talk with each other, and wives frequently want open, open communication with their husbands. They want, they want to talk with their with their husbands about anything and everything, just so long as the husband doesn't say anything that one of her girlfriends wouldn't say. Right. Uh, what happens is that uh, husbands and wives are from different planets in, some, in many respects, and so consequently what, what open communication means to one is not what open communication means to the other. And if... Um, if a husband shares that he is tempted by something, if a husband says, for example, yeah, um, verse 5 pretty much describes uh, how Tuesday went, right? <laughs> and she says, and she is mortally offended and doesn't speak to him for three months. Well, what's that, what's that saying? She's mortally offended at simply the fact of the temptation. Well, she's flying in the face of... Um, what Paul says in Colossians. At the same time, the husband is flying in the face of what Paul says if he doesn't take this charge to mortify these things with the utmost seriousness. All right, you see that? So we, we can say on the one hand, this is not an unusual thing. When we are afflicted with dark temptations, if you are afflicted with dark temptations, that is not the problem. The problem is when you don't do what Paul says to do in the midst of that dark temptation. What, a, a quick illustration, resisting temptation like this is like playing tennis with the devil. You don't lose a point if the ball comes on your side of the net. You don't lose anything if the ball comes on your side of the net. You, uh, you lose a point if you start collecting the balls, if you start picking them up and putting them in your sack, if you uh, swing at them and miss, and if you hit them over your head backwards, that's how you lose points. You, if you keep the balls that come on your side of the net, but if you say no, if the ball comes on your side of the net and you say no, and you return it, and then two seconds later, but look at her, and you return it, but look at her, and you return it, and you drag home at the end of the day feeling like the worst Christian who ever lived, and it was the best day you ever had. That's not bad Christianity, that's good tennis. <laughs> so to speak. It's, it's the best day you ever had because you said no. You were putting these things to death. You're dealing with them the way Paul says to deal with them. But if you're dismayed by the simple fact of them, then you're living in la-la land. You, th you think that you're uh, straddling heaven on the one hand and, and paradise on the other. That's not where Christians live. We live in this world that's shot through with lust, and we are seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly places. So remember, that when the Bible says put to death, 
There are three stages of mortification. Three stages of mortification, which means putting to death or executing. The first stage is what all true believers have done, which is putting yourself to death to the world and the world to you. That's in Galatians 6.14, Romans 6.3. That is conversion. You are converted when you put the world to death as far as you're concerned and, and vice versa. So that is conversion. You're baptized into Christ's death. You're baptized into his death. The second mortification, second kind of mortification, is found here in Colossians 3, and it refers to the putting of significant sins to death, and it is a definitive event. It's a definitive event. You deal with it. You deal with it. The third is an ongoing task. The third kind of mortification is an ongoing task. It's a daily task, and it refers to the mortification of the deeds of the body. And it's an ongoing responsibility, and it's um, given to us in Romans 8, 13. All right, we put to death the misdeeds of the body. Mortify the misdeeds of the body. It is like weeding your garden every morning at 5 a.m. You will always find something, but if you are being diligent, it will presumably be a small weed. It might be in its nature the same as that gnarly thing that you put to death last year, that definitive event where you had to do some serious repenting. That's digging up a three-foot-high weed, and then you start weeding your garden daily, uh, and there's never been a gardener in the history of the world who went out at 5 a.m. to find a weed and couldn't find one. You can always find a weed. You can always find, and you can identify what kind of weed it is. And you know that if you went away on vacation for three weeks and came back, you know that that weed will have overtaken the garden. So you weed daily. So you, you, uh, you have the mortification when you first became a Christian. There's the mortification that you, when a personal revival or a time of recommitment or, or cleaning house or getting right with God, that's the Colossians 3, 5 kind of mortification. And then there's the daily ongoing uh, mortification. And this is what John Owen uh, said in his wonderful book on, on mortification, on dealing with sin. He said, let not him think he makes any progress in godliness who walks not daily over the bellies of his own lusts. Don't think that you're making any progress in godliness if you're not daily walking on top of the bellies of your lusts. Now, there's something else that's interesting in this passage, and that is the, the great uh, sentiment in verse 11, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or, free, bond or free. Christ does something to all the animosities that exist between various ethnic groups. Anybody, uh, one of the things, one of the advantages that uh, we have in this community with so many of you receiving a, a classical uh, education is that you've read Herodotus and you know what the Scythians were like. The Scythians were really, really, really bad, all right? If there's anybody who could be counted upon to generate bad blood among neighbors, uh, it would be the Scythians. Their history was a, a, a grim and grotesque history. They were just bad people. And the gospel is for them. The gospel is for them. Now, this is, this is an important one, and I, wanna, I want to uh, speak this uh, because we're in the middle of it in our politics, in our cultural wars. We are living in a time when people are trumpeting racial reconciliation and Black Lives Matter, and we've got to do something about slavery, uh, reparations for slavery. What's happening is this. 
We live in a time when racial animosities in our country, racial animosities in our country are festering and growing. They are doing so because we are feeding them with the miracle grow of humanist wisdom. We are making our racial tensions grow. We are making things worse. Just the other night, I saw a candidate for president saying that we needed to pay reparations for slavery. What this must mean to us as Christians should be really straightforward. These people plainly need Christ. These people are lost. They need Jesus Christ. And why? The slavery of two centuries ago was an awful reality. In fact, it was so awful that nothing devised by the wit of man can even come close to dealing with it or the aftermath of it. We can't fix it. We are the sinners. We are not the saviors. We are the ones who screwed it all up. We're not the ones who can put it all back together. We're the ones who pushed Humpty Dumpty off the wall. We're not the ones who can put him back together. We can't fix this. We cannot fix this. And the more we try to fix it, the more we make it worse. We're like that woman in the Gospels. The more she gave her money to the doctors, the more she didn't get better. That's what's happening to us. Roman slavery, pagan Roman slavery, was even more atrocious than what uh, happened in our country and what happened in the Middle Passage. So when believers put on the Christ coat, what does Paul say about it? When believers put on the Christ coat, he says that the slave-free distinction becomes meaningless. Meaningless. Let's read that again. And put on the new man, verse 10. Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Jew, Greek nor Jew, right? No distinction between Greek or Jew, and they hated each other. Circumcision and uncircumcision. The circumcised, the Jews, called all Gentiles dogs, right? Circumcised, that, that distinction is obliterated. Barbarian, Scythian. Barbarians were, to the, to the Greeks, anybody, uh, the word barbarian comes from uh, the, how the uh, language sounds so different. For the Greeks, anybody who is from uh, the barbarian tribes sounded like they were talking bar, 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 bar. That's, that's how they sounded. It was just gibberish. So barbarians, and then he throws the Scythians in there just to give the whole thing a little bit of extra tang. Uh, the, the Scythians would go to war. They would, they would skin the people they defeated in battle, right? They would kill them, and then they would skin them, and then they'd stretch the skins on a, a little um, placard type of thing that they would mount on their horses behind, behind them so that it would, they, they, took, they didn't just take a scalp, they took the whole skin, and they would display what they had done, the cruelty of what they had done to their enemies to put, the, put fear into them. Those, those, that's what the Scythians were like. Do you think anybody had a beef about what the Scythians had done to their great-grandfather, what the Scythians had done? So Paul throws the Scythians in there, and then he says, slave or free. Bond or free. He explicitly addresses slavery. Neither is there in Christ, there, neither is there Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But what? Christ is all and in all. So the slave-free distinction in Christ, and I want to emphasize, and only in Christ, 
becomes meaningless. That means if your great-great-great-grandfather was a black slave and you are in Christ and you are fellowshipping in church with someone whose great-great-great-great-grandfather was a slave owner, then you can have fellowship, you can have sweet fellowship without any reparations because Christ is all and is in all. But you can, if you start going around making people pay reparations based on their skin color, you're going to have somebody whose great-great-great-great-grandfather was the guy who enslaved the black people in Africa, took them down to the coast and sold them to the traders and brought them over. And then you're going to make somebody whose parents moved here from Finland in the 1920s, you're going to make him pay reparations based on skin color alone. Do you think, do you think we're going to make things better or worse doing that sort of thing? sort people out by skin color, and then try to untangle history as though we were competent to, to judge all the details of history, we're not God. We're not the Savior. And God, who is omnipotent, who is omniscient, who does know all things, what did he do when he looked down at this seething mass of ethnic hostility, which is what the history of the human race is, the history of the human race is just one ethnic battle after another. That's what human history is. What did God do? He sent Christ to die on the cross. And he told black men to put on the Jesus coat. And he told white men to put on the Jesus coat. And he told the Scythians to do the same thing. And he told the slaves to do the same thing. And he told the free men to do the same thing. He said, put on Christ. Trust me. You don't know what you're doing. When you run the show, all you do is enslave one another. All you do is hate one another. All you do is devour one another. Stop trusting your own wisdom. Do what I said, and that is to put on Christ. So the fact that we're still trying to fix slavery a century and a half later is a testament to our nation's apostasy from Christ and our hatred of gospel liberation. We hate gospel liberation. We are a lost people, not because we want racial reconciliation, but rather because we cannot obtain it through our own wisdom and we cannot do it for love or money. We can't fix ourselves. So hear, hear this plainly. Do we need racial reconciliation? Absolutely we do. Do we need to fix the hostility that exists between the sexes? Absolutely we do. Have men abused women? Yes. Have women manipulated men? Yes. Have, have whites abused blacks? Yes. Have blacks ab abused blacks? Yes. Have, you know, just go on. Sin, 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 sin. Everywhere you go, sin. Blacks are sinners. Whites are sinners. Men are sinners. Women are sinners. We're all sinners, which means that we can't fix it. We can't do it. And God who can do it says, not only, not only can you not save yourself, but you cannot even be trusted to figure out what direction you ought to go. So here, let me send you Christ and put on the Jesus code. Now, there's something else. In the sins of verse 5 are really corrupt and grimy sins. They are the kinds of sins that we rarely mention at church. As professing Christians, we are ashamed of them. And that's good. It's good to be ashamed of shameful things so long as we make sure to go on to slaughter them as instructed. But the sins of verse 8 and 9, the sins of verse 8 and 9, which says, 
But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his deeds. Those sins, the verses, sins of verse 8 and 9, are often the sins that are committed at church. It's not just, it's, it's not just that we are um, willing to mention them, it's we're willing to commit them on the grounds of the, of the church. To be sure, when we do this kind of thing, we have to decorate our anger, we have to decorate our malice, our accusations, we have to decorate our gossip as a prayer request, you know, let's... <laughs> Let's, let's, pray, let's all pray for Susie Q, whose husband's having an affair with so-and-so. Is she, is she really? Well, let's go to prayer in a minute, but tell me more first so I can pray more earnestly. Now, you, there are all kinds of sins of the tongue that are tolerated at church, that are oftentimes cultivated at church. They go on in the fellowship hour. They go on in the parking lot. They go on everywhere. And Paul says, no, done. We've even got, gotten adept and making all of this seem like a zeal for righteousness. We talk, talking about other sins, the sins of other people, can make you feel like you're pursuing righteousness. But nevertheless, whether decorated or not, or renamed or placed in a theological context, the devil in your mouth must be repented of. The devil in your mouth must be repented of. Even though you might be able to say it, even though you might have figured out ways to say it at church to other Christians in the presence of, in the same room with the person you're talking about, and you can make it all seem holy, we need to repent. The devil in your mouth, malice, anger, carping, bitterness, anything, basically you want what's coming out of your mouth to be consistent with the coat you're wearing. You put on the Jesus coat, how does, that, how do, how does your conversation line up with how you are supposed to be dressed. So, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As this section closes, Paul says that we are to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and there's a particular kind of overflow that results from it. The overflow is musical. He mentions particularly psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, this is a place, I think, where we can profitably compare uh, the parallel passages in Ephesians and Colossians, because Paul says something similar, very similar, in both places, at least in terms of the fruit. And by fruit here, I mean the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in that order are mentioned in both Colossians and Ephesians, letters you'll recall that were written at the same time. In Ephesians... This overflow is the result of the filling of the Spirit. Many translations of Ephesians make this sound like the Spirit is the fluid that we are filled with. But a better translation, I would argue, would be filled by means of the Spirit. He is the agent. He is the agent of filling. He is the agent, the one doing the pouring, not the one being poured. So it's not like you're filled with the Spirit because he's the, the fluid and you've got a spiritual dipstick that you can check how you're doing. Uh, you know, how, how, um, how high is my spirit level today? Rather, the spirit is the agent, the person who dwells in you, and he is the one who pours something into you. And what is it that's being poured? We can see the answer to that here in Colossians. It's the word of Christ. It's the word of Christ. So put all of it together. Let the word of, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, resulting in musical 
and scriptural gratitude. Dwelling in you richly through the agency of the Holy Spirit, resulting in a musical and scriptural gratitude. Now, one last comment about this. This passage makes plain that all Christians are to be musical. All Christians are to be musical. Congregations, in, in the biblical um, framework, all congregations are musical congregations. We have music trained musicians to lead us, but Christians, to be Christian is to be musical. To be Christian is to be a people of song. So all Christians are to be musical. Music is not optional for us because gratitude is not optional, and grateful people sing. Grateful people sing. Thankful people sing. But stack these feelings up in the proper order. I say this because I'm addressing a congregation, speaking to you, I'm addressing a congregation that contains an enormous amount of musical talent. And we're going to be tested in this area. We're going to be tested in this area, particularly as musical literacy spreads in our midst, as we're training our, our young people to read music, and, and as it's becoming more and more part of the general education that all our young people uh, receive. And it becomes commonplace. When musical literacy becomes commonplace and people grow up never having known anything else, there are going to be temptations that come with that. There are going to be additional tests for us as we move into a more acoustically rich environment. All right, so when we move out of this, the field house and we move into a sanctuary of our own and we have employed, as we have, uh, acoustical engineers to make sure that it sounds good, to make sure that there's no dead spot in the sanctuary, to make sure that when we're singing together, it's acoustically rich. There will be temptations that come with that. All right? So the Spirit leads necessarily to music. The Spirit brings music. The Spirit doesn't move without music following. Whenever, the, whenever there's been a reformation, whenever there's been a revival in the Christian church over our 2,000 years, there's always been a revival of singing, always been a revival of music. The Spirit brings music. But it's not the case that music brings the Spirit. It's not the case that music brings the Spirit. The music can be degraded music, as much of our popular culture is. The music may be high-flown, high, you know, Tony music, well, all music is Tony, but Tony in the other, um, Tony in the other sense, it can be highfalutin music, it can be classical music, it can be really accomplished and not have the Spirit be present at all. So the Spirit leads necessarily to music, but it's, it's not the case that music leads to the Spirit. You can be a Christian, and you can be a musician, and yet not be a Christian musician. You can be a Christian and a musician, but not be Christian in your musicianship. In other words, you can be a Christian and an architect, but be following a school of architecture that is worldly, carnal. Right? That You can be a Christian and an artist and be following a pagan theory of art. You can be a Christian and a musician and not be Christian in your musicianship. And what's the key? If you are ungrateful or unkind or sour or critical or competitive or envious or conceited or vain, then you might be a musician but not be a Christian in your music. 
Christian music is what you can sing with the Jesus coat on. Christian music is what you sing when you put off the old man with all of its attitudes, all of its uh, sour, bitter, cranky, critical attitudes. You put all that off and you put on the Jesus coat and then what comes out of your mouth when you sing then? So Christ is all. And Christ is in all. And this means that he is in all the music. And if gratitude, if gratitude is not the spiritual pitch that you are seeking to match, then we are flatting and sharpening our way up to the heavenly gates. If it's not grateful, if it's not grateful, it's not good. If it's not grateful, it's not good. And I don't care how good it is. Right? And veering over to the popular pop music, it doesn't matter how popular it is. It doesn't matter how proficient that person had to be. If it's not grateful, if it's not thankful, it's not what God wants. So always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5.20. That's the pitch. Christ is the pitch. Christ is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And that means, that means if we could do, we could spend a lot of money, spend a lot of time, we could get an acoustically rich environment and think that we'd come into the promised land and God was much more pleased with our singing here when we were singing in gratitude than there when we started to sing in pride. If we, if we ever get to the point where we look at the new building or, or listen to the music in the new building and we're like Nebuchadnezzar standing on the walls of Babylon, is this not great Babylon that I built? Pretty soon, as far as God's concerned, the music is going to sound like Nebuchadnezzar is a moo cow. It's not, going to be, it's not going to be what we thought it was going to be at all. So Christ is everything. Put on the Jesus coat, keep it on, and constantly check yourself every day. Am I being grateful? Am, am I being grateful? Am I singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord? Am I doing this to teach and admonish one another? It's all Christ. It's all Christ. Always and everywhere, Christ. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we think about these things, as we ponder them, I pray that you would help us to see where we must make application. Amen. In the Old Covenant, God repeatedly commanded Israel to keep the feasts, to offer their tithes and sacrifices and to eat and drink and rejoice before the Lord with their families and neighbors, the strangers, the fatherless, the widow in their midst. In fact, the command to rejoice is so tied to the festivals and the worship of God that the command to rejoice almost seems synonymous with worship and feasting. If God commands his people to rejoice, the connotations are clear. Rejoicing is feasting and worship before the Lord. And so it's no accident that Jesus commanded his people to celebrate this meal in remembrance of him. And when the early Christians gathered together to commemorate his death and resurrection, they celebrated with this meal. Biblically speaking, rejoicing is always around a table with family and friends and with as many of our neighbors as will come. So what are we doing at this table? We are rejoicing. What is this whole service of worship? We are rejoicing. What is this day that we are marking and celebrating? It's the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath, the day Jesus rose from the dead, the day he finished his new creation work and rested, having made all things new. This is our feast day, our festival day, 
our day of rejoicing. This is why we worship weekly, because we are commanded to rejoice always. The Christian feast is a continual feast, a weekly feast, a feast that marks the beginning of every week. So, is this a festival week? Does this week begin with a feast? Why, yes, it does. Every week is a festival week in the Christian calendar. Every week is marked by the Lord's Day, by the Christian Sabbath, by rejoicing. And therefore, the invitation to this joy is an invitation to take this joy with you. Let this joy mark your tables today and throughout the week. Let this joy mark your words, your conversations in the car, your work, your lives. So come, eat, and drink. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. Come, eat, and drink. Our Savior lives, and all things are made new. Come, eat, and drink, and rejoice. Come, and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks, so let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in you because of your son, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into into your right hand. Father, we rejoice that we have ascended with him, that we are seated there with you. And so we rejoice in you and rejoice and give thanks in Jesus' name and amen. You are the people of God. This means that your God rejoices over you. He loves you. He loves that you've gathered here this morning. He's assured you that he forgives you. He's spoken to you as your father. He's fed you at his table, and he's about to send you out with his blessing. This is your God. So as you go, recognize you're wearing the Christ coat. You wear that coat. Talk like it. Act like it. You're wearing the Jesus coat. You have joy in your heart. You have thanksgiving in your mouth. So spread it around. This is the goodness and the grace of your God to you. And receive it now. Receive his blessing now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and give you his peace. And amen.